archaeologists from the future unearthed just the shopping receipts from quarantine, what would they think happened in the year 2020? I'm not sure that 538 staffers are exactly representative of quarantined people as a whole, but our purchases paint a bizarre picture. Our animator bought a pair of rollerblades. One writer bought some teal eyeliner. Another writer's partner bought two fanny packs, one tie-dyed and one printed with neon pizzas, along with a bag of MSG. One of our visual journalists bought gushers, as in that juicy gummy snack that I haven't even thought about in a couple decades. And one of my colleagues is seriously considering buying a giant box filled with 75 romance novels, including shipping, it's $41. So maybe worth it? So what would those future archaeologists think? Rollerblades? Fanny packs? Gushers? They'd think they were looking through receipts from the early 90s. It makes sense, I guess. We're all trying to ground ourselves by reliving happy memories from the past. Nostalgia is comforting. It's why right after this podcast drops, I'm going to go watch some old episodes of Star Trek Next Generation. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Picard, I mean Podcast 19, from 538. Today, we're going to explore some new evidence that suggests that what we've all hoped for is getting closer. Confirmation that getting the virus provides some level of immunity, and that a vaccine for COVID-19 is possible. But first, just how many Americans have died of COVID-19? In recent weeks, this question has become increasingly political. Reportedly, President Trump has questioned the official death count and wondered whether it's exaggerated. And in Florida, the Medical Examiner's Commission accused state officials of preventing the commission from publishing its own death count. Counting deaths for any disease is difficult, and COVID-19 has been especially complex. But we do know that the count is likely too low, not too high. Our senior science writer, Maggie Kurth, has been looking into why that is and what it has to tell us about those who have gone uncounted. By the way, throughout this segment, you may hear some background noises. Kids, trucks, sirens, dogs, we're all doing our best here, folks. Can you walk me through how we count fatalities from COVID-19 in this country? Well, I can, but it's complicated. Um, it turns out that the way that we count fatalities from everything differs a lot by county, by state, by region. And so it's kind of easier sometimes to make a really specific example. And as I was looking into this, I ended up focusing on the case of Bob Duffy, a retired New York City firefighter who died on Long Island on March 29th. He lived in Nassau County. And so kind of looking at his story, I was able to get specific answers to how this process works than we can really do on a national scale. Maggie met Bob's daughter, an environmental epidemiologist, through something she posted on Twitter. It's interesting that Megan's an environmental epidemiologist, given the sort of state of the world right now and the fact that her father died of a global pandemic. 
Bob actually spent a couple of summers being her PhD research assistant back in the early 2000s. So he actually did epidemiology um, himself at one point. So firefighters tend to retire somewhat early. Uh, so he'd spent over 30 years with FDNY, but then retired and then actually came in with my field assistant, some ecologist. <laughs> he was my field assistant for a couple of years during grad school. Um, so he, uh, he hadn't gone to college, but we joked that he got half a PhD. So what happened when Bob died? Just how was his death counted? So Bob died at home, and he'd not been tested for COVID-19 before he died. Partly that was because he didn't want to go to a hospital, and he didn't want to be separated from his wife, Fran. And partly that was just because getting to the nearest testing site was pretty complicated. And he said, I said, do you think I should take him for testing? But at this time, the testing was only at, in this area, at Jones Beach which is, you know, must be maybe 30 minutes away from me. And then you have to get on these lines and he has the oxygen. He needs the oxygen 24 hours. So when he died, he hadn't been tested and he died at home. And that meant that the person who decided what Bob died from officially was his family doctor, who he had seen in a, in a video chat uh, when he was sick. But Bob also had a lot of pre-existing conditions. You know, 30 years as a firefighter, you don't come away unscathed. He had uh, lung scarring. He'd had a stroke. He had a couple of different cancers. So he had mouth cancer. The next year, he had colon cancer, which were not related. And the next two years, he had uh, liver metastasis of his cancer. He had all of those treated with chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, every one of them was treated. So his cause of death ended up getting attributed to these pre-existing conditions on his death certificate even though he had come he had you know presented with these very classic symptoms of COVID-19 and had actually been in contact with people who later tested positive for COVID-19. We don't have much precedent for people dying of novel infections in this country, but was the way his family doctor handled the death certificate normal? For example, if Bob had died of something like influenza and had done a similar sort of video chat with his physician, would his death have been logged the same way? Well, there was a lot of changes that were happening around the time Bob died in sort of how the guidelines were set up for what should be counted and what shouldn't under COVID-19. And it's completely reasonable that he wasn't counted at the time. About two weeks later, new guidelines came out that set up precedent for how you would decide what was and what wasn't a probable COVID death without an actual test result. Um, but it's also not that different from what would have happened under a, you know, death from influenza. It's pretty uncommon for family doctors to end up as the people who are left 
figuring out how to fill out a death certificate. That's not something that they do every day. Um, that's typically more something that happens in hospitals. And if Bob had died in a hospital, he probably also would have been counted, whether he would have been tested or if he hadn't been, um, just because they had kind of slightly different protocols at the time. One of the things I think that is interesting about all of this is that when we look at more common diseases like influenza, we have our entire death counting system around that sort of set up with the idea that we're going to be undercounting those deaths. So if you look at the way that the CDC tracks influenza deaths from year to year, it's as an estimate. It's not as a exact number. And that estimate is based on the exact numbers that get turned in. With something like influenza, if you look at the CDC, the way that they count those deaths, they're actually done as an estimate. It's kind of an algorithm thing that they generate using the number of reported flu deaths, the number of influenza-like illnesses that cause deaths, and just a lot of like what we know about the epidemiology of flu, because we have kind of this rich understanding of how flu spreads and you know what deaths are likely to look like for the number of cases. Um, and we do that because there are we know that there are people who are dying of flu every year who don't get recorded as absolutely having died of flu based on a test. And that's even in a situation where it's not hard to get a flu test. Pretty much anybody who wants a flu test can have one. There's not shortages like there were with COVID-19 early on. So the setup that has kind of been put together for these guidelines around probable COVID-19 deaths is pretty similar to how we count flu. And eventually, years down the line from now, we'll have an estimated death burden of COVID-19 the same way that we have an estimated death burden of flu. Right. And so I guess the takeaway, right, is that we are doing our best job to estimate the number of deaths from even diseases that have been around for a long time, like flu. But, you know, there's still some level of uncertainty there. That's why we call it an estimate. Right. I mean, there's it's it's a tough thing to do because there's always going to be people who die without getting tested. There's always going to be people who have pre-existing conditions and that you know, that's what they get recorded down as. There's always going to be these people who are kind of like Bob Duffy and how we how we count them, how we accommodate the fact that they exist into our numbers is a pretty important part of getting that count right. So even if the count is not exact, it's more correct to include some of those people than it is to not. You mentioned that if Bob had died in a hospital, he might have been he he almost definitely would have been uh, counted as a, a death from COVID-19. What makes um, dying at home more complicated in terms of getting logged as an official COVID-19 death? Um, a big part of it is that he didn't have access to tests. Um, another big part of it is that family doctors um, aren't as familiar with filling out the death forms. So Bob's doctor, I was not able to talk to. He, he didn't return calls for an interview, but he actually did a pretty good job of filling out the death certificate based on what experts told me. Um, there are a lot of family doctors who don't. There's three different lines that you're kind of able to fill in, and you're supposed to kind of 
set it up as a story where nobody ever dies of just one thing. There's always something that was contributed to by something that was contributed to by something. So like, even if you're in a car accident, it's going to be like blunt force trauma caused by car accident, right? It's never just a simple death. And Bob's doctor did a good job of kind of telling that story, but where a hospital might have also included probable COVID-19 in one of the little boxes that were available, Bob's doctor didn't. And we don't really know why. Um, and some of that just may have been unfamiliarity with what hospitals were doing with what um, the CDC was already starting to suggest that people do. I know there was a shortage of tests at the time, but you'd mentioned that Bob did have many of the symptoms of COVID-19. So why didn't he get tested after death? Yeah, Bob had a very high fever, 103 at one point, um, and he had very, very rapidly lost a lot of energy. Thursday, I said, after I finished work, I said, now let's go get out and we'll walk, you know, we'll walk down the block, so around the corner. So we got about three houses down and he said, I can't walk today. I'm too tired. And he also had like low oxygen levels because because of his previous lung damage, he actually had a the equipment to test that at home. But he was not tested after death, and that was something that his family thought would happen, but all the people that they thought would do that weren't responsible for that. You know, that wasn't what they did. Um, they got called by the county medical examiner at one point, um, but county medical examiners, I've since found out, are really, at least in the case of New York State, mostly only coming into the picture if it's a unexplained death that doesn't really look like it's clear why someone would have died. Um, but with all of his pre-existing conditions and his age, that wasn't something that seemed peculiar, right? Um, and then the family also thought that maybe the funeral home would test him, but that's not something that funeral homes are doing in New York State either. And part of this sort of comes down to differences between like these states and jurisdictions and regions. You know, if you go over to Milwaukee County in Wisconsin, the medical examiners are kind of being put in charge of certifying every single COVID death. But that's not what was happening in Nassau County. And not only are medical examiners often not administering COVID-19 tests, but Dr. Sally Aiken, the president of the National Association of Medical Examiners, told us that fewer autopsies are being done as well. For the most part, medical examiners and general hospital pathologists aren't doing as many autopsies now, partly because there are so many dead in New York City. They're probably doing way fewer autopsies than originally and in Chicago. So for the most part, we're not doing autopsies on those decedents because, for one thing, OSHA has recommended that we not do autopsies unless there's a sort of compelling reason because of our own risk for contracting COVID-19 during autopsy. Given how different the process is in different counties and different states and the fact that at least early on testing was uh, very difficult to do, just how accurate do experts think our estimates of the death count nationally really are? Experts are pretty sure we're undercounting. 
pretty much everybody I talked to told me that. And they base that off of several things. Um, you know, first off, just the fact that we know that testing access hasn't always been available. And we know that for a good chunk of this pandemic, if you didn't have a test result, you weren't getting counted. So just off that alone, we know that there's some undercount happening. There's also good reason to suspect undercount because of data we have on these big jumps that places with a lot of coronavirus cases are seeing in um, all-cause death counts and um, deaths from pneumonia and influenza-like illnesses that are much higher than they have been at the same time of year in past years, um, even when you account for the amount of flu cases that they have, you know, those are still higher. Um, so with those kinds of things happening, there's good reason to think that the undercounts are going on. And you add into that just the simple fact that, you know, we know we undercount flu every year. So it's kind of this, it's kind of this conglomeration of data and logic and past experience. And from that, the experts are pretty sure that undercounting is what's happening. Several researchers and media outlets have tried to quantify just how many excess deaths there have been since COVID-19 came to the U.S. A data analysis by the Washington Post and researchers at the Yale School of Public Health found that only half of the excess deaths in the early weeks of the pandemic, which is to say the increase in deaths compared to the usual average for that time period, were attributed to COVID-19. Likewise, the New York Times found that there were almost 64,000 excess deaths between March 15th and April 25th, though it's unclear how many were due to COVID-19. When we're talking about this number that stands for the national death count, where is that number coming from? Well, it's coming from a number of different places. Um, the CDC actually has two different numbers um, that they are publishing. And that can get really confusing because it's not super clear on their websites what these two numbers represent and what makes them different. And when people publish these numbers that aren't the CDC, it's also not always clearly explained which number is being used. So they have one number that is being pulled directly from the websites, the publicly available data on websites of states and counties around the nation, depending on which is the um, which is the entity that collects that in that particular jurisdiction. And that's being done by a nonprofit called USA Facts that pulls all this data and conglomerates it and gets it into daily numbers. And then those daily numbers are then published by the CDC. So that's that big number that you keep seeing that like 90,000, I think, is what it's up to today. Um, there's also a significantly lower number, about half of what the more commonly cited number is. Um, I believe it's around 60-something thousand today. Um, and that is a number that I've been kind of called, thinking of as the slow count. So that is a process where all of the data from death certificates that your doctor fills out, that the hospital fills out, that information goes to a state vital records office. The State Vital Records Office has this count then that they have publicly available, and that count is what gets pulled over for the fast count. But then 
this all of the stuff in that count starts getting checked. So you have these emergency response teams in different states. You have these medical examiners in some places. You have people that are kind of going through these and, you know, trying to do some investigation around some of these deaths that might seem like they could be COVID or that have like some sort of question about what could be causing the death. And that slows down that process. Um, then once they kind of have the investigation done, then all of that stuff gets sent to the CDC and the CDC's records department then codes it and puts it into certified death certificate form, sends it back to the states. And that's where the slow count comes from. So the slow count data can be as much as three weeks behind what is going on with the fast count. It does not, it's updated every day, but it doesn't actually represent daily deaths. It represents how many, what we know on this date about how many people died on all of these other dates. And so that can change over time. It goes up over time and it has been consistently lower than the fast count, but that doesn't mean that the lower number is, it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't mean that one of those two, these numbers are in conflict. They're measuring different things. One of them is trying to be as accurate as possible, but is so slow that it's not a good, quick reflex idea of what's happening at this current moment. One of them is a good, quick reflex idea of what's happening at this current moment, but some of those deaths may get tossed out or changed over time. Just how off do experts think we are? Like, just how many deaths are being undercounted. Can, do we have any sense of that? Mm, they weren't willing to make that kind of estimation at this point. Um, we know that in the past, if you look at like the H1N1 uh, pandemic in 2009, it took two years after that was over for the finalized estimates of the death counts to come out from the CDC. It's never going to be exact. And I think that that's one of the things that we wanted to help people understand is that this is a process of trying to get closer to right, but it's never going to be perfect. And that's just because death is complicated. Yeah. Why is it so important to have an accurate death count? There are different reasons that it's important. And that's actually why we have these two different counts, right? Um, You want an accurate death count that's fast because you want to know you want to know whether cases are going up or going down at any specific time so you can have immediate policy reactions to the situation at hand. Um, you want the slow count because you want to be able to get an idea of how this thing affected our country and what long-term policies can be put in place and like what to expect in the future, what worked and what didn't work. Um, you need both of those things. And what's accurate for one is not necessarily the best accuracy for the other, if that makes sense. I think it's kind of difficult to wrap your head around, but when you can't, when you can't count something exactly, you kind of have to, um, figure out what you're going to prioritize. And sometimes you need to prioritize speed and sometimes you need to prioritize Uh, you know, getting as accurate as you can. And those are different things. And even the longest term counts, you know, when we go back and do these estimations that sort of tie everything together, um, those are going to be less 
exact in that they don't come from directly from like we counted one person and you know then put them into a box. Um, but they're going to be more accurate in the sense that we're counting people like Bob. It's been almost two months since Bob died. Do you think we will ever um, actually count Bob among the the COVID nineteen fatalities? Um, when the CDC does, you know, whatever down the point in line that they do an estimated count that will represent people like Bob, um, Bob himself won't be counted. How do Bob's wife and daughter feel about the fact that he doesn't have a, a sort of an official uh, COVID-19 diagnosis or that that isn't listed on his death certificate? I actually asked Fran that. How do you feel about the idea that he might not be counted? Well, that I, I feel sad about because I think we can learn more for the next pandemic because there'll be another one. I don't know if I'll be around, but, you know, we always have to learn from our mistakes or we have to learn from history. There's good reason to think that he had COVID-19, but nobody knows exactly whether that was what happened. And because they don't know that, we also don't know whether the people he came into contact with who later got COVID were people who gave it to him or people he gave it to. But he definitely falls into that gray area. You can't say he definitely had it, but, you know, he had, he had the symptoms. Not having that exact idea, you know, I mean, it's sort of similar to the numbers themselves, right? That you want to be as exact as possible, but you're not going to get exactly what you want. And that's a hard place to sit. It's a hard place to be as a nation, to not know exactly what's going on. It's a hard place to be as a family, to not know exactly what's going on. And um, unfortunately, that's sort of what the reality is. How are uh, Fran and Megan doing these days? Um, They're doing okay. You know, I mean, they're doing about as well as you would expect. Um, I've talked to Fran a couple of times. Um, It seems, I mean, it's hard, right? It's not easy to lose somebody that you have been with for decades. Yeah. And see, you you can't have a funeral. Yeah, I have a, we had a drive by the church blessing. Um, I know she is a nurse and she has been going back to work. You know, I, I was kind of glad that I had to go back into the office this week because it kind of, you know, takes your mind off of it in a, in a little bit of a way, you know. And she has been planting the flowers that people sent to remember Bob's life. You know, I I got so many tulips and hydrangea plants. I spent the weekend, you know, planting them around, you know, the property. <laughs> so we're down to one one thing of pansies on the on the steps. Can you tell me a little bit more about what Bob was like? Yeah, um, from what I know, um, Bob was uh, this really big part of his community. Um, Fran told me these stories about how he, after he retired, he started volunteering with the local parish social services. And so he basically became this unpaid social worker for his community. 
Now, most people volunteer one day a week. Bob officially volunteered five days a week, but ended up with keys to parish social ministry, keys to directory, keys to the garage. He was up there seven days a week, and he couldn't be stopped. He was driving people around. He was making sure that families had food and housing um, to the point that when he died, she kind of ended up inundated by these memorials from people she'd never met, um, food and flowers and cards filled with letters and all of these people whose lives he'd touched that, um, you know, were always going to remember him. You know, I might not recognize their name, but they say, well, we don't really know you, but we know Bob from Parish Social Ministries and Vincent DePaul and all the the things that he did. So, you know, that's really, there's not one card that comes that doesn't have a, a, a separate letter in it. So he really had an impact on everybody. Maggie, thank you so much for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for sharing Bob's story. I, I'm really... This is the first time that I have been entrusted by a family with a story like this, and I hope that I did a good job of telling it. I think you did, for sure. Over the past few months, we've all become armchair experts on immunity, particularly when it comes to antibodies. Antibodies are part of what's called our adaptive immune system. They're immune weapons that bind to and remember specific germs, protecting us if we ever meet those germs again in the future. But antibodies are only one part of our adaptive immune system. Two types of cells, helper T cells and killer T cells, also play a big role in fighting infections and remembering them in the future. And a new study published in Cell, a leading science journal, just found that people who recovered from mild COVID-19 infections build up strong T-cell responses. The helper T-cells are required to get the antibody response. So you actually don't, you don't get a good antibody response, a a big antibody response, a high quality one, unless the helper T-cells are also recognizing the virus. That was Dr. Shane Crotty, a professor at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology and one of the authors of the study. Basically, finding that there's a strong T-cell response to COVID-19 is encouraging because it's further evidence that being exposed to the virus provides some level of immunity to it. That's because some T-cells help antibody production, and also because they remember infections by binding to specific parts of germs, just like antibodies do. For that reason, when we create a vaccine for COVID-19, we want to make sure it includes viral proteins or other molecules that both antibodies and T-cells react strongly to. The normal way to design a vaccine is to look at what the natural immunity looks like, what's the adaptive immune system, the specific immune system normally do and do well, and then make a vaccine that essentially copies that. 
Most of the COVID vaccines and trials now use the virus's spike protein. Those are the little spikes you see sticking off of the coronavirus in illustrations you've seen. That's because we already had evidence that antibodies react to the spike protein. Now, what was not known is whether this protein was also a target for uh, helper T-cells and uh, killer T-cells. And this is a serious issue. That was Dr. Alessandro Sette, also of the La Jolla Institute and an author of the paper. To find out if T-cells respond to the spike protein, the scientists drew blood from 10 recovered COVID-19 patients. They then checked to see if those patients had T-cells that could bind to various parts of the novel coronavirus. And they found a strong response to the spike protein. That's good news for the vaccines already in clinical trials. They also identified a number of other viral molecules that elicited a strong T-cell response, which maybe could be added to vaccines, along with the spike protein. But maybe if you want an extra kick, uh, we have identified uh, some additional targets. The scientists learned one more important thing during their research. Like any good study, they wanted to look at T-cells in a control group of people who had never been exposed to COVID-19. But given how prevalent the virus is and how some people can be asymptomatic, they used stored blood samples from 2015 to 2018, before COVID-19 even existed in people. And so we used them as a negative control, and then uh, the negative control was not so negative. What Dr. Sette means is that about half of the La Jolla control samples had T-cells that recognized COVID-19. Now, their guess about why this happened is that the blood samples were from people who'd had one or more of the four coronaviruses that cause the common cold. And perhaps cells that bind to these common cold coronaviruses also bind to the one that causes COVID-19. That might even contribute to why some COVID-19 patients get less sick than others, though at this point, that's still speculation. It could also have some impact on vaccine trials, since we might be immunizing people who already have some protection from the virus. That could be an important thing to know as researchers analyze the data from some of these vaccine studies. Of course, this was a small study, but encouraging news is going to come from small studies for now. It's more evidence that immunity to COVID-19 is possible and that we're on the right track to finding a vaccine. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. By the way, one 538 staffer who will remain nameless confessed that their quarantine purchase was a bidet attachment for their toilet. <laughs>